and welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. I'm Kelsey Henry. And I'm Caroline Liefers. And today it's our huge pleasure to be talking to our colleague, Micah Cater. Micah is a PhD candidate in history and African-American studies at Yale University. Micah, you know that we're really looking forward to chatting with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. It's really a pleasure to be in conversation with both you and Caroline. And I look forward to hearing you know, your thoughts and so that we can have a great dialogue about what this chapter brought to the fore. Great, we're so excited. I was wondering if you could paint the picture of your larger project. So how does this chapter fit within your larger dissertation project? So the dissertation, which is called Unable to Find Any Trace of Her, Black Women, uh, Genealogies of Escape in Alabama Prisons, 1920 to 1950. You know, we always have those dates as bookends as historians. <laughs> um, it's a cultural and social history of Black women who ran away from prisons, jails, and police in Alabama during the early 20th century. Uh, and the core of the dissertation theorizes that escape was not monolithic. And what I mean by that is that escape contained multiple valences that were responsive to the sites and epistemes of gendered racialized violence. So put another way, the choices that black women made when running away from prison strategically challenged the specific ways in which their race and gender was weaponized against them and I think about this both spatially and in terms of epistemology. So to give a very clear sense, the dissertation is divided into two sections. The first section is called Fugitive Geographies, and it centers that spatial analysis, that way of thinking about how Black women's escape is really rooted in certain spaces of domination, and that these spaces of domination are not all made the same and reciprocally. That's why escape looked very different. So to give an example, chapter one uh, looks at, it's an analysis of how black women strategically escaped the implementation of domesticity as a form of punishment within the prison. So very concretely what that looks like is trying to sort out how black women specifically deploy notions of Black subservience and loyalty that were conditioned and impelled in prison as they were caretakers for white prison employees in order to be able to walk out the front door during the day. And so like Pearl Finley, I have a lot of cases and I, I end up calling them kind of collectively a repertoire. A lot of cases of Black women who were forced to work in private homes on prison property and then leave in response to those very specific sites. Chapter two then kind of picks up at the point of the breach of the penitentiary walls. And so it's in the tradition of Catherine McKittrick's spatial analysis about, um, you know, thinking about critical geography and blackness and it delineates how the state's spatial domination spilled over past the walls of the prison. Um, and then how black women had to contend with this increasing New Deal era cooperation between uh, prison guards and police officers. And that brings us to this chapter that we're here talking about today, which is thinking about 
how disability within the prison and black women's petitions about their conditions of disability were spatial claims. And the way that I do this and the way that I think about this in conjunction with the first two chapters is that a lot of these claims were being made in response to the very specific sites of labor, the factory labor, the laundry work, and that claiming uselessness to the state was wrapped up in these terms of labor and was wrapped up in very specific types of labor that were being done. And as it might come up later um, in the podcast, you know, for instance, there are Black women that I have sources of self-harming in ways that are meant to address and provide refuge from particular kinds of labor with the hands specifically. And just to give, I'll give a very brief um, overview of the second section, but I won't go into as much detail because this, this chapter is really situated in that first section. So the second section is called Genealogies of Escape. And it interrogates how black women contended with prison administrators mobilization of the antebellum past through technologies that survived the abolition of slavery. So for instance, I look at escape notices, I look at the use of hunting dogs. Um, and then finally, the last chapter in that section uh, considers the genealogical and twinned imperatives of running away and finding kin. Um, and so that really, that is it, that is the dissertation. Thank you so much for that really helpful contextualization. So Micah, I already know a little bit about the pathways that led you into disability history and disability studies, but we would love to hear more about what this journey looked like for you. I know that your larger project has its foundational roots in carceral studies, Black feminist theory, and African-American history. So maybe these aspects of your project and your engagement with those fields felt more immediately apparent to you. Um, when did you realize you were also doing disability history uh, and that disability theory was a necessary part of the story that you were trying to tell? And how did your sources lead you in this direction? That's a great question. And one that I have since thought about a lot because Really, it was my sources. Um, I did not envision that I was embarking on a project that demanded disability studies as a lens, not necessarily because I didn't think it was important or a really central analytic to a lot of work at, you know, happening in Black feminist theory, Black studies, African American history generally, but because the prison as a site was a really confounding and complicated space when we think about disability um, for reasons that we can of course go into in more detail. But one of the most prominent examples that come to mind for me is dealing with violence in, pr in prisons and how that is working in tandem with, dis with disability in general in um, carceral sites. And so what I mean by that and is that for me, when I was looking at my sources, which of course are generated by the state. And when I say by the state, I'll be a little bit more specific because that can be really nebulous and not really give folks a good sense of like, who is who are the state actors who are generating these documents? So the main people who are writing documents for the state of Alabama prisons in the first half of the 20th century are what we call the warden, um, 
the state doctors, which are traveling from different prison camp to different prison camp, from penitentiary to chain gang. And we also have folks who are working at the top bureaucracy in the state, who are then kind of responsible for coherent policy and also administering dictums and dictates to individual prisons and wardens. So because a lot of these documents that are produced about prison are being produced in the logics of the state and its actors who are really in charge of discipline and punishment, that means that disability is both everywhere and nowhere. Because on the one hand, disability we can see through the violence enacted by the state. We see the disabling effects of that violence. While the doctors might talk about that violence in very nebulous, um, non-committal ways, because in part that was their job to inure the state to any kind of criticism of cruelty, um, even as they themselves enacted brutality. There was also a sense that disability couldn't exist because Black women particularly who were incarcerated were already deviant in terms of their body and minds and were also there to be worked. And disability could not really coexist with that. And if it did, it had to be in very certain temporal terms. And what I mean by that is it had to be temporary because the state was also uh, a state of, in a state of austerity. This is really common in a lot of Southern states in the, you know, for a long time in the 20th century, but particularly in the first half of the 20th century, as we kind of leave the progressive era, even as the state is expanding certain services, they are also contracting and trying to think of themselves as a very slim facet of the political economy. But I didn't really think about all of that theoretical infrastructure until my sources led me there. And so there was one source in particular that I'd like to talk about just really briefly, and it does open up the chapter. So I came across a letter and I was looking for um, notices of escape. And in the state archives in Alabama, these are organized in a multitude of ways. Some escape notices are in boxes that are literally runaway advertisements somewhat a similitude of the genre of runaway advertisements from enslavement, and I talk about that later in the dissertation. But others are actually letters that were written every time someone tried to run away from prison. These were letters written by the warden up to the state bureaucracy so that they would catalog every single attempt to run away. And in one such letter, I found something really peculiar, which was very odd, and um, I'll just, give a brief excerpt of the quotations. And when I do, I'll, I'll say that I'm quoting, but otherwise I'll just give a narrative overview. So we're in December of 1924. It's, um, you know, it's Alabama, so it's not particularly cold. It's towards the end of the year. And a woman named Pearl Finley, who's been incarcerated for some time, um, it's in the middle of the day. She has been uh, forced and coerced to work as a care laborer in one imprisoned employee's household. And during the day, she gets up and she walks out. And she makes it into a field near the prison. And of course, they immediately go looking for her. And as someone comes upon her, it's unclear what happens. But there's no discussion of any kind of a, a fight. There's no discussion of any kind of resistance. 
It's as if as easily as she walked out the door, she came back in. And so the letter that gets generated after her attempt to walk away in broad daylight is one that I had never seen before because rather than discussing what was the appropriate punishment to be meted out, which were very carefully calculated and brutal ideas of how much the body, and this is of course in the context of the racialized and gendered logics of the carceral state of black women's bodies, how much punishment could be taken. Instead, what was written was that Finley was quote, very weak minded. And when they got her back to the walls, she did not seem to have any mind at all, end quote. And so instead, the warden suggests that rather than punish her, she had no willfulness to even walk away. The, the act of walking away from cooking was emptied of any kind of a gentle choice because of this state of her mind. But of course, that wasn't uncontested because carceral logics were very confused and confounded within the broader discourse of ability and disability. And so even as the warden makes that note, the physician wrote a note at the bottom of the letter in his own handwriting, because these letters were typed. And it said, quote, I will have to see this woman before I can pass my opinion, end quote. And so here in this moment, in this one letter, it's very short in the archive, I felt that both disability, as I mentioned before, is everywhere and nowhere. We know nothing really about Pearl Finley's state of being in terms of her embodied experience. We only know that disability is at the core of the question of whether she willfully walked away and thus whether she, we, she would be exposed to further disabling violence. And the complexities of that really compelled me to think about how to talk about disability and white supremacy and carcerality as these very entwined and messy and entangled processes that sometimes produce results that I wouldn't expect, like I did in this letter from the archives. Thank you so much for that, Micah. Um, you've already touched on um, these themes of escape and refusal and the instrumentalization of disability that incarcerated Black women made use of to avoid penal labor in Alabama prisons from the 1920s through the early 1940s. I actually want to go back to kind of the, the multiplicities of ways that disability is showing up for you in this chapter and in these sources, because this is such a critical part of the intervention that you're making. And I think that you do it so beautifully. So you write about how disability shows up in this chapter as a result of carceral violence but it's also naturalized as a metaphor for innate black deviance. Mm -hmm. It's showing up in multiple registers. And you have this beautiful uh, sentence, or it's, it's part of a sentence in the chapter where you say that disability discourse about racialized inability and violent punishment formed an entwining helix. I'm wondering if you could break down this concept of the entwining helix for us and all of the different ways that disability is showing up in the chapter. Of course, and I would love to first say that that phrase, I have to credit Sammy Shock because I was in conversation with her about this chapter 
And at first I had a different phrase in there. Uh, I can't quite remember at this moment, but she very poignantly, you know, offered this entwining, this helix shape as a better way to think about the continuities that exist. Because essentially that was both the, the possibilities in this archive and their limitations were the ways in which these categories run together. Um, so if you think about an entwining helix, you think about the ways that all the sides are visible at certain moments, but as you turn the helix shape, you see that the sides are also running together. So since this is quite complicated, obviously I have space in the chapter to really write in quite detail about the theory behind this. I thought I would hone in on a few points that really informed how I came to this theoretical framework. And in so doing, I'll bring up a few anecdotes along the way to kind of help listeners get a sense of why I felt like all these categories needed to be discussed in tandem with each other. Because much like Pearl Finley's case in 1924, when she walks away, there is so much going on, both in terms of what the state is producing about that moment, the knowledge they're producing about it, but also about what we can see within the source, you know, if we read against the grain. So the first thing that I will bring up is I have a concept in the chapter called medicalized non-compliance. And this is a really, I think this is a really powerful way to enter into this conversation about how disability, discourse about racialized inability and violent punishment were forming this helix. So medicalized non-compliance came about for me because I was seeing in a lot of the archives, and this is for listeners, this is like, um, punishment records, which are annals of punishment. They're very violent, but also very dispassionate sources to use Vincent Brown's uh, language. Um, this is also coming out of correspondence written between state physicians, wardens, and bureaucrats. So those three state actors I talked about earlier. And I noticed that in regards to a lot of the punishment being meted out to black women in particular, there were these recurring words and um, what we get with those words are stubborn, deviance. Um, I won't name all of them because I think that a lot of them are quite violent, but it might even be something that sounds like a pseudo-medical term like dementia simplex or that might've been a contemporaneous medical term that was then reapplied and repurposed to describe someone who was being willfully dissident. And this is where the complexity lies. And I really appreciate this question, Caroline Kelsey, because at once the state did their best to completely erase any traces of dissidence and resistance. And yet, in every instance in which there was kind of a willful, uh, a willful move against the conditions of being incarcerated, or even sometimes not, it was met with violent punishment. So when I use the term medicalized non-compliance, I'm saying specifically that state physicians and wardens uh, work together to create certain definitions and names, a lexicon, if you, if you will, of black women 
who were resistive, who had desire, who had the audacity to have willfulness in the face of punishment and discipline. And in using those names is suborned violence. It's not that the names, and my argument is not that the names necessitated or were necessitated by the situation, but that the names themselves and the kind of diagnoses of medicalized noncompliance legitimated and justified and made it almost necessary in the carceral system for black women to be subjected to torture. Um, so I'll give an example of one person in particular where the records, the, they oscillate and they're all over the place because at first there was a real attempt to discipline this woman into working. And when they couldn't get her to do that, they use these terms of medicalized noncompliance to suborn punishment. But when that didn't work, disability comes into play in a really particular way. So in 1927, a 35-year-old woman named Mary Thomas begins her incarceration at Wetumpka State Penitentiary. And at the prison, there was an internal factory that the state had contracted in order to make money to make both clothes for the state, these women generated clothing for all people incarcerated in Alabama, but also it was an underwear factory that was being contracted by a private company. And um, the warden, the acting warden at the time, as for every black woman who wasn't assigned to the kitchens or to other kind of isolated labor tasks would be assigned to the factory. And they tried to get her to sew. And they had a lot of difficulty. She just, for some reason, as Carlton the warden reports, she quote, did not want to do anything. Now we don't really know what those instances are like. We don't really know how much she resisted or whether this was just kind of a way to encapsulate his racialized gendered understandings of black women's relationship to work, but they had the doctor examine her because I thought the only reason that she's not working is that there's something wrong with her, that there's something that is incapacitating her. And they said she, and the warden was concerned specifically that she was quote, playing crazy. And this is the phrase that was specifically difficult to work through because at once, there's kind of embedded in it, a sense of um, mental disability. But on the other hand, they're talking about her feigning it, that it's not, that there's not, a, there's not the veracity, that it must undergo medical clearance before they really believe that her reason for not working is embedded in a racialized inability that they don't quite call disability, but is adjacent to a kind of disability. So the doctor examines her and basically says, there's no, she, she, there is nothing they say. I cannot find quote, anything wrong with her mentally, end quote. And so diagnosing Thomas as playing crazy with suborn violence. And this is the kind of language I'm talking about with medicalized noncompliance. And I, you know, I, I made a certain decision when I decided to come on the podcast that I'm not going to go into details of how torture was acted out, um, specifically for listeners who don't, you know, who don't have the choice of whether to pause and 
I just wanna make sure that everyone can fully listen. But I will say that there was violent punishment that came after this. But then after a while, it flipped. It wasn't just, it was not no longer playing crazy. They then decided that in um, 1932, that Mary Thomas was in fact mentally disabled in a way that would allow them to send her to Mount Vernon Searcy Hospital, which was um, an institution. And she never returned home. She died in that psychiatric institution. But the story really stuck with me because she, she was implicated from the beginning in these discourses about racialized inability. And that racialized inability is sutured to the notion of a compulsion and a, a kind of innate nature of workability. So this is the complication here, is that Mary Thomas was at once seen as someone as all black women who entered Alabama's prisons that was very workable, could be worked without regard for her body and mind. But at the same time, when she refused to work, it was seen as a racialized inability. These were kind of competing claims being made about black womanhood. And it was never going to be identified as a disability in the sense of what her embodied experience of ability or disability was. Instead, when she could no longer be controlled by violent punishment, when they determined that no matter what they did, she was resistive, no matter what they did to her, she would not comply. They then instead went to a psychiatric institution, which was, you know, and Sammy Shock has a great summation of this in her work, which is the process of being institutionalized, as we know, was quote, not, was to be read and labeled as disabled in a different way than one is actually disabled, end quote. And so that's kind of, that kind of source material is what I am trying to work through when I talk about the entwining helix of disability the discourse about racialized violence, uh, racialized inability, excuse me, and then the violent punishment that is meted out in response to those things. Thank you so much for that, Micah. And I think following up in many ways on, on what you've already said, I think Kelsey and I would like to ask a little bit more about some of these criteria around disability. So you write in your chapter that state physicians and prison officials were often dismissive of Black women's reports of disabling violence that happened while they were incarcerated and denied their appeals for early release due to disability. And so we're wondering if you could say a little bit more about this business of authority and who got to define disability. What was their burden of proof, right? When was it believed and under what conditions? That's a great question and one that demands somewhat of a <laughs> contingent response because part of the difficulty of this archive is that records are both inconsistent and in plenty. So there's an overwhelming amount of material, but some of the underlying logics, you know, the very minutia of policy decision are um, subsumed under the quantity of paperwork that we're so why I start there is because 
it's not a straightforward answer. And it, it certainly isn't a straightforward answer between let's say 1920 and 1945, because administrations are changing, policies are changing. But I will say broadly speaking, the burden of proof was really, um, it was the doctor's responsibility from start to finish. So I'll give a, a, a listeners a little bit of a better sense of what I mean by that, because folks might not be sure, you know, how are doctors involved from start to finish? So when someone was to be punished, imprisoned, um, they would call the doctor in. And the doctor was responsible for interviewing and for performing a physical exam to see whether the person was physically fit and able to undergo punishment. But of course, this, like a lot of reforms, was really less about producing any spaces of refuge and safety and more about creating um, an indemnify, I'm sorry, it was really about indemnifying the system of punishment by using the guise of care as an alibi for the state. And the doctor, and most of the records that I found from doctors, no one is really getting excused or released from punishment, no matter their physical condition. And these ranged widely, but doctors found pretty much everyone capable of undergoing brutal punishment. And to give you an example, and this is one of the examples that starts in the chapter, the section in which I talk about medicalized noncompliance. In um, the 1920s, there's a young woman named Willie Young who is at Spainer State Prison, which was where a lot of black women were incarcerated before the reopening of Wichumka State Penitentiary just a few years later. And Spainer had a massive cotton mill and it was very violent. And this is something that comes up a lot in black women's petitions later at Wichumka when they're worried about getting sent back to Spainer. And Willie Young um, is in some sort of a romantic, it's not clear whether it is coercive or not, so I won't speculate because I don't have the information, but she's in some sort of, I, I shouldn't have said romantic, I should have said sexual encounter with a black man. Um, and the guards come upon this. And she is um, tortured by several of the guards. But in response, what happens when she writes her letter to the state warden general about this? She's basically saying, you have to come here. You have to see the evidence of what they've done to me. Really what the state does in response is two things. One, they send a physician inspector to go investigate the claims. And two, they take the word of a prison employee who wasn't even present at the time, and we know this from her letter, as the kind of final word on whether any of the things that she names very specifically happened to her. And most importantly, a doctor was present at the whipping. And this was very common because again, like the initial evaluations, the presence of the doctor was meant to create a sense of order and as we know from scholars who work on modernity and slavery and racial capitalism, order is essential. Modernity is essential. The kind of bureaucratic management 
of people and violence is how the system is reproduced. Um, so, but to answer the second question, when was disability believed and under what conditions? It was believed somewhat, it was in racialized and gendered terms. I mean, and if it was believed, it was not believed in the sense of, oh, this person has an embodied experience of being disabled. What kind of care and healing, or not healing, excuse me, what kind of care and um, do they need? What kind of resources can be of use? Disability was believed in a terms of surveillance. And what I mean by that is two things. One, in the 1940s in particular, when we're moving toward a kind of more expansive carceral state, which there is now um, a lot of county uh, sites for incarcerated people in addition to the state sites. Venereal disease is kind of this ultimate, penultimate manifestation of racialized gendered ideas about sexual behavior, ability, incapacity. Um, and so they wanted, county officials and state officials wanted to track venereal disease in the 30s and 40s. And they subjected black women and really, I mean, they subjected all women who were coming through the carceral system to gynecological exams in order to do so. But again, it was only believed in terms of what they, what they needed to surveil. So of course they want to surveil venereal disease. So they see it, they mark it, they note it, they talk about it as a kind of incapacitating force for penal workers. Um, and then, you know, in terms of surveillance, what I also mean is that in accident reports that get produced in the prison, which is one genre that I came across a lot, and accidents, I mean, could vary, but that was a very broad term that the state used. But they would have, you know, length of disability listed on the form. And that was meant to really, it was always produced in relation to workability. And it was also kind of used in these kind of pecuniary terms of how much is the state losing with this accident? How much did the warden and the guards do wrong in whatever they abdicated their responsibility so that we have lost money? And so it was kind of a way for the state bureaucracy to surveil individual sites and for wardens and guards to surveil the capacity of individual workers in these sites. Oh my gosh, that was such a multidimensional answer. And there are so many directions, so many questions that are coming up for me around everything that you just said. I am curious about the ways when we're talking about uh, legibility, what kinds of disability and when disability became legible uh, to prison wardens, to uh, prison physicians. Um, I'm curious about this distinction between um, mental, mental illness or categories of like uh, mental defect or inferiority and physical disability. And if in the records, if you were seeing um, a tendency towards identifying and believing mental inferiority in black women because that was already natural, like a naturalized part of the way that they were racialized, this idea of mental inferiority and deviance, whereas physical disability was less legible. 
because of the, again, this like racialized, gendered uh, understanding of ability and disability that you're talking about, that Black women and Black people in general were often associated with hyper-able bodies, but inferior minds. I I'm wondering how that distinction between the mental and the body were coming up for, for you while you were doing this research. That's a great question. And it, it provokes me to think a little bit about two um, different, very different examples in the archive in which I was, you know, it was a little bit of a struggle sometimes to cohere everything around this one term of disability because there was very divergent responses and preceding circumstances to kind of black women's attempts at fugitivity in relation to disability. So the first example I'll give, which kind of opens the chapter after Pearl Finley is of um, Josephine Coates. And Josephine Coates, this is in the 1930s. Um, she was temporarily paroled. And let me just pause for a second to give folks a sense of what that is, because it's not really, a, it's, it's not really in our contemporary uh, landscape of carceral terminology at least to my knowledge, and it was a really big practice in the early 20th century in Alabama. So to go back to those austerity politics of the state, they were all constantly concerned about how many people were in prison, not because of people's welfare, obviously to be clear, but because of the financial cost of incarcerating people. So the state often temporarily paroled people out, um, and they often did this with with black women, sometimes they would do it to work in white people's homes, as Sarah Haley delineates in No Mercy Here, uh, which she calls the, the domestic carceral sphere. Um, and in this case, Josephine Coates was one of those people. She was paroled out to work in a white family's home with a date that she had to return to prison. And these dates were very important because the state surveilled these people and kept close tabs. Um, so even though the technology, you know, they were dealing in the 30s, they would have been dealing with you know, a lot of letter writing um, to kind of keep tabs on people, they did a remarkably efficient job at it. So this, the day when Josephine Coates was supposed to return came and went, and she didn't come back to the prison. Uh, and when the white man for whom she had been working realized that she had missed a day, he frantically wrote to the recording secretary at the state capitol, so someone who was kind of involved in this process of bureaucratically managing um, you know, these paroles. And he noted that they were, quote, having Josephine return, you know, this very kind of passive language in which she, it basically turned her into an object. And we know from Black Studies, the complexity of objecthood and how it is articulated through Black women. But he begged them not to, quote, allow the incident to affect her standing. And he took the blame himself. He said, I am afraid, quote, she must not have understood me. Um, and then he calls her ignorant, perfectly submissive, and says, quote, she intends to do the right thing. And so I have a lot of stories of women who don't go back on their time when the time comes. They try to stay out in any way they can. And one of the complexities of this story and you know, the, the subsequent stories that I tell in this chapter is that I don't actually have 
archival material from Josephine Coates. I don't really know why she missed the date. I can't really be sure. But I do know that her white employer, and eventually it seemed like she convinced both you know, the state bureaucrats as well, did not believe that she was willfully dissident because she appeared, quote, submissive, ignorant, and in some ways was seen as mentally disabled. And like you said, Kelsey, that kind of submission, um, that you know, willingness to, in her white employer's words, do the right thing, which is to like perform under the terms of white supremacy, um, inoculated her from any kind of uh, accusations of willfulness, which in this system was the ultimate, the ultimate kind of thing to be punished and rooted out. So we have on the one side, Josephine Coates, who is kind of seen as under the cover of this inability to have will. And, you know, Kelsey, you and I have had conversations at length about willfulness and disability. And I think it's still very complicated and messy to deal with. But then on the other hand, we have Vera Nall, who around the same time writes to the state and says, um, and is petitioning to be released, saying, I have only one leg. And she's saying that her work, she cannot perform the labor that is being demanded of her because of her disability. And the state does not respond to this in the same way because it is seen, and in my opinion, and my analysis, the issue here is this bifurcation of capacity and ability. And I think for Josephine Coates, she was seen as incapacitated. But for Viernal, who is saying, I am unable to do this work, that is not the same as being in, incapable, incapacitated to do the work. And I see that as the, the essential divergence in how the state is responding. That's a really, really helpful clarification. Uh, thank you so much for that. I, I wanna go back to something that you were saying that you were considering about the ways that mental inferiority in your archives were already naturalized to all incarcerated black women. Um, this is kind of a question about terminology. I noticed when addressing your subjects, the subjects of your analysis, you toggle back and forth between saying disabled incarcerated black women and disabled and incarcerated black women. And the inclusion of incarcerated black women, regardless of impairment, I think really does challenge our assumptions about who might qualify as a disabled subject in disability history. And I'm curious about how your work, you feel like your work troubles assumptions about an ability or disability binary. And when disability history is told through the lens of black women's history, how does that particular lens complicate assumptions that we have about disability and ability? What a great question. And it makes me think specifically of Alison Kafer's work um, in which she talks about how able-bodiedness is relational even as it is cor corporeal um, and reciprocally how disability is relational even as it is corporeal. It's about the body and the environment. And I think that this is how I navigate 
the stories I tell and the archive that I'm analyzing. Because while, while I, you know, in line with a lot of disability studies scholars shy away from this notion, while the truism that, you know, everyone will experience disability in their lifetime, I shy away much like other disability studies scholars from saying that everyone is, is disabled and there's like equity in that term, um, because that's not true. But what is true in terms of the relationality and how Black women's experience, particularly in prison, complicates the binary of ability and disability is that we, of course, some women entered prison disabled, but the compounding factor is that a lot of Black women left prison disabled who did not enter it disabled, or for those who entered it disabled, might have left prison in a in disabled in a different and compounding way than when they entered prison. And the reason for this is about environment. It has everything to do with the violent apparatus of the state. So for instance, in the early 1920s, a woman named Marietta Timmons is incarcerated. Um, at, um, and she begins to have symptoms of pellagra. And, you know, it's really, it's really hard to determine how she ends up suffering from pellagra, which for those of you who don't know, is a nutritional, a, a disease that essentially stems from nutritional deficiencies, and it does begin to affect your neurology. And, you know, pellagra could have stemmed from innate circumstances at the prison, meaning that not enough food, the kind of food was not nutritionally fulfilling, uh, the food was spoiled or rotten. Um, it could also be that she herself chose and willed to not eat. I don't know why she had pellagra, but the way that the state talks about her having pellagra and the conditions that compel them to want to send her to a psychiatric institution instead is because um, that there's something innate. Again, it goes back to this racialized inability as if by nature of her being black, she is somehow more susceptible to a disease of nutritional deficiency, even as she is seen as very workable. And you know, this I think would draw a lot of parallels for my colleagues who work specifically within chattels and plantation slavery. Um, because I know that there are paralleling logics here about both workability and the body susceptibility or inoculation to disease. Either, you know, there are these kind of confused binaries that definitely exist around um, Black women's bodies. But it's so interesting because, you know, there, there are these moments of absolute confoundment that I, we know that race, racist, patriarchal, ableist states like have very confused logics, but the ironies of those logics are never felt so much as they are in this case, because even as they are kind of confounded by her pellagra, which seems quite clear that, you know, it's stemming from her environment in one way or another, the place that they, that they suggest to send her in response, which is to this, you know, psychiatric institution at Mount Vernon, was where studies were done to figure out how pellagra is actually produced in the body. Meaning like 
This was the site in which doctors came into before the 1920s to perform studies to find out, okay, why are people experiencing these dispersive symptoms that we now call pellagra? And they realized it was because of nutritional deficiencies. And so the very place that they're suggesting to center is a very environment that's been steeped historically in producing this kind of disability. And then, um, and then relinquishing any kind of care in its aftermath. Wow, I think using uh, pellagra as an example was so helpful for clarifying to me something that you said earlier about the ways that the environmental factors that contributed to disability or debilitation in carceral spaces could be unseen or invisibilized because the body that was experiencing pellagra was black. Um, and even though like pellagra could be linked to nutritional deficiencies because black bodies were already seen as deficient, that was a more convenient rationale than condemning the environment. Um, yeah, wow. Um, this is a little bit of a pivot um, I wanted to talk with you more about the place of disability theory and theory in general in your project. And so I know you already mentioned Alison Kafer. I know that she's an interlocutor for you. Can you talk to us about some of the disability theorists who have inspired your work? And on the other hand, talk to us a little bit about kind of vernacular theories that disabled incarcerated black women uh, developed or the ways that you read theories of freedom into your archives. And were there instances where your historical actors or sources um, either extended or upended some of the 21st century disability theories that you were working with? So that's a multi-pronged question about 21st century disability theory that's inspired you, uh, vernacular theories of your actors and how they work together. Great, I love that. Such a great opportunity to discuss all of the wonderful scholars that I've been able to be in conversation with. Um, and I think from both the chapter and I hope for listeners from the hearing the podcast a little bit today, I hope that you've gotten a sense that I do think of theory really capaciously. And I've had a few really great conversations with you know, colleagues and friends about when do we ascribe theorization to our actors? Um, and I, you know, I was really informed by um, Amy Cox, who's an ethnographer and anthropologist, her work um, in Shapeshifters, her book on black girlhood and what she calls the choreographies of citizenship in thinking about how we really rigorously treat, you know, our subjects' theorizations, even if they don't, you know, use the language of what we might consider like high theory or a very academic language to discuss theory. But nonetheless, I do use a lot of academic theorists. So let's talk about a few of those. Um, so first of all, my work is very much indebted to and informed by Sammy Schock's work. And I, um, I specifically have been able to think with her work about how to get at the nexus of these interlocking structures of violence um, without falling into the trap of 
simply saying that disability is only and always a metonym for blackness used by white supremacy. Because I think that's certainly a trend in some work um, to kind of relegate and silo disability as a structural violence, um, let, me, let me be clear, a discursive structural violence rather than an embodied experience that has real material consequences. Um, but reciprocally, I, you know, I really uh, benefited immensely from the discourse that has kind of emerged between Jasper Poor's work, The Right to Maim, and Liap and Moshi's Decarcerating Disability. And thinking about um, with both of those works, I think what the, the real richness there is certainly how do we attend to what the possibilities, the futures, you know, the kind of beautiful aspects of the embodied experience of people's uh, li disabled lives without neglecting how Black women in particular often become disabled. Um, and that's not to say, of course, that violence precedes every Black woman's disability. That's absolutely not true. But it is to say that particularly in the context of prisons, that disability is very difficult to extricate from the violence, the discursive and the physical violence that act in tandem to create structures of um, subordination. But really, I, I have to say one of the first pieces of theory that compelled me to take my time with this material to really get into the meat of it was the pamphlet from Sins Invalid, which is a disability justice collective. Um, and they have this really wonderful pamphlet primer called Skin, Tooth and Bone, a Disability Justice Primer. And it was after reading that, that I, I understood and better, um, I felt like I had more tools to really contend with my archive, even as I'm dealing with, you know, instances and references to disability that are often very spectral. And what I mean by that is not that they're immaterial, but that they're opaque. As in the case of Josephine Coates or Pearl Finley, we're getting these descriptions under the terms of their captivity. And that complicates it, but I felt like I had the tools with these theorists. I felt like I was empowered and emboldened to kind of think critically about how disability was the necessary analytic to uh, look at these archives. So I'll pivot here too to the second part of the question, which was about, so given all these disability theories I'm engaging with, then what, what how am I then mapping that onto how disabled incarcerated black women theorized freedom? And what did these freedom theories of freedom look like? For me, one of the primary sites of this theorization is in relationship to labor. And I think about this a lot, partially because a lot of the archives I have from disabled incarcerated black women are talking about themselves and their bodies and minds in relationship to the labor they are forced to do for very good pragmatic reasons, because they understood in a very sophisticated and nuanced way that the state valued them insofar as they could labor for them. And that their capacity to labor was an essential site of domination and punishment in the prison. 
and if their labor was then evacuated, you know, whether this was a, a veritable experience, whether it was a way to kind of strategically position the body and the mind to, you know, feign inability to work. Um, although I, I, I try to stay away from that because I don't really have the ability to determine what their workability was. I think, again, part of their theorization was I have the right to determine and tell you what my workability is, what I can do and when I don't want to do it. And so what was really striking to me is the language that I kept coming across of uselessness to the state. And this is really poignant. I mean, this is really powerful language to me because again, it was very sophisticated and it was a very nuanced and demonstrative argument about the pecuniary relationship of the state's prisons to black women who are forced to work in them. Because they're not arguing, I didn't do anything. They're not, that's not their argument. And it's not because they did or they did not. It's simply because that wouldn't have worked. They're not arguing that, you know, some try to argue I, I'm ill, I'm not well, but those petitions don't always really go anywhere because again, the state doctors perform surveillance of those claims and so really your, your wellness is adjudicated by a doctor who thinks anyone is well for punishment. And so when are they really going to say that you're too ill to be in prison? And so instead they draw the conclusions that they know will be most effective at getting them out of prison, which is I cannot work for the state any longer. I will become a financial burden to use the language of the state rather than a productive mechanism for the state. And so if we think about what Saidiya Hartman says about liberalism's compulsions for black labor and docility, these twin concepts or contorted willfulness, you know, Kelsey, to kind of use some of the language that you and I have talked about under the guise of free labor, that is what these women are contesting. They are contesting, because this is not free labor, right? But it is actually tricking in the language of post-emancipation free market labor. And so these women are contesting what the state is compelling them to do as kind of, and to perform docility. I mean, the state wants them to perform docility in this labor. And so I'll take it one step further though, because I really, the story about one woman named Mira Alexander is really compelling. Um, and she is incarcerated and, um, writes to Governor William W. Brandon in 1923. And she is very detailed about her disability. And also, you know, that she is having bowels and rectum trouble. These are her words. She's, she knows she has to be very specific. She can't eat anything but milk and eggs and very little of that. And she then, that letter is not successful. So then she writes another letter and says, I can't do anything. I'm not able to work. And so here, Mary Alexander understands that not only in Sarah Haley's argument that black women were only legible, quote, white authorities as what, quote, imbecilic monstrous bodies, is what Sarah Haley's words are in, in her book. But I'm saying that Alexander and others had to pair the notion of the monstrous body, which is racialized and gendered, with the material consequences of disability that she was not a productive worker to the state. 
But I bring her up not just to reiterate what I just said, because actually there's something else that happens with Mary Alexander. So a month later, after they do release her, because she can't work, the warden at one of the prison camps at a mine calls the, one of the bureaucrats in Montgomery and says he has information about Mary Alexander. So we see kind of how the surveillance continues after release. And there's basically an exchange of information in which someone tells the warden that Mary Alexander has been hanging out with um, people somewhere, it's unclear, and who run a quote, blind tiger, which is an ableist nickname for illegal drinking salons during prohibition. Um, and this is the, the language that they're using, not my, my words. And that basically, because she is hanging out and having like partying and drinking, that this should cast doubt on her inability and illness that she used to say she couldn't work. And so what ends up happening is they revoke her parole and she has to come back. But why I tell the story is because what I see in this, even though I don't have Mary Alexander's words after her parole was revoked, is that she articulates an inability to work, a uselessness to the state. She gets out and then she's, she continues to theorize freedom in her actions. I, I don't know if she ever writes about them, but she's living a life that says, I do not need to work, but I can still have a full-fledged fulfilling life. And so it's really challenging liberalism's compulsion to be like, a good worker, right? That's your worth, that's your value in life is to be a good worker, especially for black women. And I think it's particularly her participation in these kind of illegal economies that is seen as a subversion of the story that she told to the state. But to me, this is actually a continuation of what she was claiming in her letters, that I will not work for you, I am disabled, I will not do this work, but it doesn't mean that I have to perform that disability in a particular way. But unfortunately, the state does view it that way. And that's why she is sent back. You've been kind of alluding to this a lot through our conversation, but I was wondering if you actually did want to say more about that relationship between chattel slavery and the story that you're trying to tell. Both of them, of course, centering around questions of Blackness, ability, and labor. So, Simply put, historiographies of enslavement um, are really essential to, to the dissertation as a whole. And you know, I made a note here that it stocks my archives in really particular ways. Some are more apparent than others. So I'll start with the more apparent ones and then I'll bring us to a little bit more of the abstract uh, intergenerational ones that I really am using to anchor the latter half of the dissertation. So in the most concrete sense, chattel slavery is producing these ideas about discipline and punishment that are being used in the prison. And I use the term, you know, my, my advisor and I had many good conversations about, you know, how to talk about this. Um, the kind of violence that is descendant from slavery. 
And she offered, uh, Crystal Finkster, she offered this terminology of survive the abolition of slavery. And I think, I think that's a really great way to put it because whippings, which is one of the primary ways that people were punished in prison, were not kind of in a vacuum. I mean, none of these violences are occurring in a vacuum. And even if the state itself does not see the direct connections and links, even if they're not conscious of their act, well, state actors that I kind of introduced at the beginning of the podcast are consciously thinking about the iterative and intergenerational significance of what they are doing and how they are imposing discipline and punishment. The epistemological productions around these, meaning like how people have weaponized them and used them, they are also intergenerational and they are improved upon. And I mean that not in a way that it, in a way of reform as if torture and brutality could ever be reformed, which it unequivocally cannot be. But what I mean is that they are undergoing the illusions of betterment. And that is how the conditions of paperwork mandates to stay within 10, 15 or 21 lashes. And that's one of the only details I'll give about, about the violence. That's how they are adapted and used. And so I can see very keenly in my archives how these productions of violence are so deeply entwined with how violence was used as a system of surveillance and punishment during chattel slavery. But it also stocks my archive in another way. And this is what I really try to take up in the second section. Because although I am telling a story um, in Kelsey's words, which I love this permutation of permutation and somewhat continuity, I'm also grappling with how black women had to necessarily, or not had to, excuse me, how black women significantly ruptured the continuity and descendancies of violence, of slavery. So what I mean by that is I have a chapter in which I write about a racially ambiguous woman who is racialized as Black, as a white passing Black woman. And this genre of escape notices is really important to this chapter because in it, I kind of trace the epistemological connections between how slave owners are trying to discipline light-skinned and white-passing enslaved women into the category of Blackness and thus away from the category of freedom. And reciprocally, how in the 1920s and 1930s, prison officials are trying to shore up racial invariableness because of the intergenerational significance and association of Blackness with bondage which is to say that when this woman runs away, they are very concerned with her ability to be white passing because they want people to understand her when they see her as a mirage of freedom and not freedom itself. Because whiteness, of course, even though white women are incarcerated in Alabama, the numbers are quite low and the intergenerational significance of what that incarceration means and how it is meted out to them is significantly different. So in that way, I really, I'm also tracing kind of the ephemera of memory and intergenerationalism and 
I also am trying to really attend to the fact that a lot of these women, especially in the 20s when they're incarcerated, are only a generation or two out from slavery. And so what actually prompted me to think about this term that I used for the whole project, genealogies of escape, is um, my own experiences. I, you know, I'm a Lebanese American, Arab American woman, and my father and his family were in the Lebanese Civil War in the 70s and 80s. And they were kind of caught in the crosshairs in, in Beirut. And I was thinking how the stories of the war that I never experienced were really foundational to my, how I moved through the world. They inform a lot in my memories of Lebanon, like the land that I walk in, the physical places I go in Beirut, because I don't live there. And even if I did, I, I think about the war in relation to them a lot. And this project really helped me make those connections about genealogy and significance of land so that when I went back to my archives after I kind of spent time thinking about this very personal nature of memory, it became apparent to me that there's, I, I don't have smoking gun evidence for this, but I talk around it using different sources that the intergenerational significance, what stories might've been told about people running away from enslavement, the land, the significance of landmarks, whether it's a tree, whether it's a church, whether it's the, a particular road, and I get these from the 1930s ex-slave narratives, these had bearing on when Black women ran away from prison because there was something iterative and recursive about it. And it's not, a kind of an anachronistic collapsing of the two, of course not. But it's to say that how can slavery, which is only a generation or two apart, and for which stories kind of blossom both in you know violent, but in you know in very significant ways for people, how can this not be endemic to the very land that these women are traversing, both metaphorically and literally? And so that's kind of how that uh, chattel slavery has has factored into my work. Thank you so much for that answer. Um, I also want to talk to you a little bit more about industrial capitalism and racial capitalism. So labor historians like Sarah Rose are, of course, writing a lot about how disability was kind of redefined under industrial capitalism. And how does that look when put in this context of racial capitalism that you're writing about? Well, to return to one of the earlier points that we, we've been discussing here, um, disability or rather, you know, how the state deployed it as a metonym for blackness was defined in austere terms because prisons were under the paternalistic guardianship of, this, of a state divested in social welfare. So what I mean by that is that disability was merely a way of accounting for fluctuating labor numbers. You know, when we talked about kind of the the very temporal nature of how they're thinking about disability as less of, it's almost less of a, a kind of permanence of a corporate, corporeal, excuse me, embodied experience and more about time. How much time will we lose? How much time will we gain? Time was really an important concept in the prison, so much so that, you know, when one, of, one black woman steals the clock from the factory, it is a enormous, uproar by the, by the wardens and the guards because time is what they are counting. Um, if you do not do your task, which is what they call doing a certain number of sewing, um, or sewing a certain number of products, you're, within a certain time, you're going to face punishment. 
So when I think about Sarah Rose's work in particular, which I kind of see as a tracing of how disabled people are both maligned and haltingly included in the developments of industrial capitalism. I think about the way that workability is really kind of um, married to an able-bodiedness, but an able-bodiedness that can be, uh, an able-bodiedness that can be supplanted or mechanized. I'm thinking here specifically about Rose's argument about the Ford uh, factories and how disability can almost be bridged into able-bodiedness through these kind of inclusion in the terms of workability. But this isn't what happens in the prison because it's workability, and I've used that term throughout our podcast here today. Yes, workability is essential, but workability is not narrow and exclusive in the prison in terms of black women's experiences because by nature of their race and their gender and almost regardless of their state of disability or ability, um, which again, that binary is very fuzzy and not clear, they are workable. And so in this way, there is no acknowledgement of violences and vulnerabilities in the prison. There is only kind of a temporal measurement of how much time are you truly incapacitated to work. And so in that sense, you know, I think that there are a lot of, I, I see a convergence in the discussions of industrial capitalism to kind of zoom back out here and talk about Rose's work a little bit. But I think from the vantage point of racial capitalism, what gets added here is that there was not a concern about um, the kind of dependency of Black women because that already existed. There was already the terms that Black women were dependents of the state that needed to be worked. They needed to be productive laborers for the state. And so in some ways, Disability, when it was acknowledged, was acknowledged again in the terms of medicalized non-compliance in some ways, so that racialized inability takes over. And I know that, you know, I, I know that can be like maybe a little tricky because we're using a lot of these different terms here, but maybe the simplest way for listeners is to just put it this way that, what, what under the terms of like what a white woman in the Northeast with the story of industrial capitalism and Rose's monograph, might be that there's kind of both a halting inclusion into domestic work for disabled white women. For disabled black women, there is a compulsion of constantly being in the service of white people. And that disability, you know, in Josephine Coates's example, for instance, that disability actually only further suborns that indentured kind of labor and servitude, or in the case of Vera Nall, who only has one leg, it's a fleeting thought for the state that actually doesn't preclude her from workability in so much as it proves her need to be worked. I don't think that's true. I, I wouldn't say that that's perfectly true across the board, because there are some disabilities and medical conditions that the state does say, okay, you know, we don't really want to pay for you anymore. But I think they would go to a very far point before they would ever say that. And I think that has everything to do with the terms of penal racial capitalism. 
There's something really interesting there too about the forced labor that happens at asylums and other institutions and the way that occupational therapy is fed into that as well in the 20th century. So just sort of making me think about pieces of my own work differently and I really appreciate that. I think um, Kelsey and I would both really like to hear you speak more about some of the methodological issues that came up when you were doing this work um, as you're trying to salvage black women's strategies of survival from this archive of state records of corporal punishment. So what kind of reading practices and methodological strategies did you adopt as you were working with these sources? That is such a wonderful question. And it's one that I think about a lot in my work, uh, particularly because of the constraints of the archive. So I think to begin to answer this question, I would like to reference a section in the chapter, which I call exiting one wound through another. And this section is really about how I make sense of documents that are discussing and indicating that Black women sometimes harmed themselves in order to escape work. And I had to wrestle with the best reading practices for this section, given the opacity of records, given that many of these records are produced under already violent circumstances and then are ascribing certain violences to the women themselves. And so to begin, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a very brief part of that section, which is narrative, about how I describe Emma Rose Cooper, a young woman's experience of Camp Katona, which is another carceral site that led her to drink or perhaps fake drinking Lysol. And after that, I'll just briefly trace some of the sources I use to write this section. We can maybe have a great discussion about speculative writing in, in historical monographs. The exhaustion festered for months. Every corner of Camp Katona smelled of rot and the belching humidity of industrial laundry. The refrigerator played host to rats. Its putrid odor was indistinguishable from other decaying scents. The beds in their endless infestations the sheets stained with what seeped from untreated sores, the toilets overflowing. Emma Rose Cooper may have never known this hell could exist so close to the place she has once lived as a free girl. Petite larceny, her cause for punishment. Didn't someone once tell her that petit was French for small? Nothing felt little about the buildings and halls covered in shrubbery and flowers. She could almost overhear the inspector who came through every week. The grounds are attractive, he might say, as he dipped in between the many courts that surrounded them. But she knew better. Her arms dipped into vats of water that at first scalded, but now cracked her skin open. There was nothing beautiful about the tired cloth they all wore, the kind they couldn't get clean even though they washed heaps of linen all day long. The sun might have been a welcome companion, even the rain, but the camp was covered. The smell of laundry burrowed in their noses. It was all they smelled. In the dining hall, they were all orderly and quiet. Isn't that what the jailman had said? Because there was nothing left to say, the taste of food long gone swirling in the dirty water and soap. Someone may have sneered that the doctors made you tell them if you had trouble pissing or if it itched bad down there. 
What do you mean, she asked, knowing it had something to do with what she smelled, when everyone stripped down to wash in a single bathtub. Fifty women swaying, three to the tub at a time. By the time Cooper got in, the water was cold. She tried to stand, keeping her feet submerged and only splashing the murky water up when she needed. Camp Katona was where Jefferson County Court got you. Cooper was 18, or was she 25? Camp Katona was where black women like her laundered next to the county home and the place for the quote, feeble-minded and insane. Camp Katona was a chained hell. One day, not far into December, on a not so winter afternoon, Cooper spotted a large jug of Lysol underneath the laundry boards and wood sticks. She knew Lysol from all the newspapers and store windows. Plastered everywhere as a cure-all disease from disease to fleas, it made things clean and fresh. Or was it a bottle of old water? Cooper smelled it until her nostrils burned. She stood right there, steam pulling at her hem and drank two large swallows of it. At dinner time, the warden was mad. He found out Cooper had drunk Lysol and yelled at her. She sat down when they told her that the doctor would have to come out to inspect her. She wasn't sure what they would do. She felt warmth in her belly, even though she cried a little. It was a Saturday night. Maybe any other year she might have been dancing or singing, sweet talking her way into a ride somewhere far from here. But this year in 1939, she was one ounce into undiluted Lysol solution. Saturday nights meant nothing good at Camp Katona. Cooper exhaled, opened her mouth and heard the doctor say, there was no evidence. Still, she swore, I drank two large swallows. They rushed the treatment, mixing flour, mustard and water. There was something else, but no one told her what it was. She was sick for hours, wrenching over and over again. The doctor and the warden smelled the bile every time she vomited. She thought they were disgusting, sycophants to science. She drank it, she said, didn't she know better? They told her she wasted their time. She was just a malingerer. So that ends the section about Emma Rose Cooper. It was a very difficult section to write with a very limited range of documents. But I'd like to talk a little bit about why I spent time with the imagery. I'm also a creative writer and a poet. And so partially, I think analytically through images a lot. But there was something particular about this story that compelled me to write about it in a narrative way. Partially, it was the opacity of whether she drank the Lysol or not, because the documents are very confused. Of course, they're produced by the state. She insists that she drank the Lysol. The doctors say she didn't, and yet they still give her the emetic solution to make her vomit. I start this section with the context of Camp Katona because I found one of the methodologies that's really important to me is when I read sources, I read them to resist the logic and chronologization. I don't know if that's a word, but I just made it a word if it's not, <laughs> but the chronologization of the state, meaning how the state sequences things, how their logic demands that they produce documents. So in order to write this section, I had a few letters, an accident report. I used, I went to the newspapers and looked up what the weather was like. 
And I looked up descriptions of Camp Katona from other letters I had. And what is lost if Cooper's story is told as if it springs from a singular accident report rather than collaged alongside other sources is all of the leading moments, all of the little violences, the slow deaths, if you will, of this carceral violence, of the ways that it instrumentalizes and produces in disability in a way that led Cooper, and I use this language later in that section, to delve, she had to delve deeper into a kind of violence in order to escape this kind of collages of violence that she was faced with. So the archival materials are organized in the logic of the state. So if we just read this accident report, we have Emma Rose Cooper, we have this day, we have her going to the dining hall and telling them she drank the Lysol, and then we have the aftermath and her, you know, state recorded disability of three days for what happened. But instead, I wanted to give a sense of all the, the environments. We're going back to that kind of notion of the corporeal as being spatial. All of the environments that contributed to this decision to either drink the Lysol or at least say that she drank the Lysol. But I also think, again, this, this illustrates, and I do this analytical work after talking about the narrative. So I don't just let the narrative hang. I also give the reader a sense of like, what are we analyzing this for? And, you know, it's important that the story is told as a way to resist. And I think this is a methodology the very specific causal chronologies that the state depends on, meaning that how the state saw black women's actions as precedents for rather than responses to violence. Because if we stem just from the accident report, this is the precedence to the violent treatment she has given. It is her actions, right? But instead, if we look capaciously, and I, I found it most compelling to do this narratively, um, and I will say that although this section is speculative, pretty much most every sentence is grounded in the source. There are things that I do, and the places that I, I bend a little bit beyond, I oftentimes put in question marks to make sure that my reader understands that I'm you know, speculating here, that I'm not quite sure. But by doing this, by organizing it and really rooting it in what I imagine Cooper's daily experience of being incarcerated would have been, I am trying to upend this notion and show that even as Black women are kind of forced into these corners of further violence to themselves, it was a response to violence rather than a precedent for it. Micah, I'm wondering, um... You know I have a question about black willfulness. <laughs> that in there. Yeah. I, I'm curious though, if you could say a little bit more about like your conversation about speculation and speculative methods made me think about the way that you're uh, working with understandings of fugitivity and fugitive mm -hmm. movement. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about the ways that you understood incarcerated disabled black women's escape strategies and theorizations of freedom 
as being demonstrations of fugitivity, like what that means for you in your work? And to what extent do you understand speculative methods as a kind of fugitive methodology? And really where I'm going with that does have something to do with salvaging an account of black willfulness in an environment where there were so many attempts by wardens, by physicians to strip black women of will. Mm -hmm. um, like how does speculation potentially lend itself to a salvage project that is thinking about reading black willfulness back into an archive that is like constantly disavowing it? That's a really beautiful question. Thank you for asking that. Um, I actually, I feel honored that this is even coming up because it, it is so central to my work. And I have made it such a point or I've tried at least in my work to really center desire and willfulness. Um, so I'll start with a, I'll zoom out a little bit and just say something about willfulness first. And then I'll make my way back towards speculation as a fugitive methodology, which I, I, I really like. And we should discuss more in the future. I see the project as recovering how Black women navigated outside of the hallmark of state subjecthood, like fitness for work, productivity, loyalty to capitalism, loyalty to employer. But I do that very specifically through, and I always use the analytic of desire, resistive desire is what I think of it as. But I think willfulness captures it more capaciously because that, that was what was at stake for the state in terms of rooting out, erasing, and contorting will. But more importantly, it was what was essentially at stake for Black women who were incarcerated. Because willfulness was something that was very punishable, but it was, the, it was the fabric, the spiritual fabric material of life for people who are surviving, who are dealing, who are trying to find spaces of refuge, which is part of the title of this chapter, amongst this kind of relegation to refuse. So I think, you know, and one of the questions at least that, you know, that is percolated, if not articulated exactly like this, it is recovering black willfulness in the face of debilitating violence. I don't think that's too strong of a word. I think that's on point. But I think it's trying to recover it in a way that also doesn't castigate and relegate these women to a state of constant resistance. Because that is an exhausting analytic in a lot of historical methodology about the binary of oppression and resistance. You know, if we're looking for systems and structures of oppression, we're necessarily looking for resistance. And one of the things that I really, I envisioned and wholeheartedly hoped that this project would not become was a story of binary of oppression and resistance. And I think this actually takes us back nicely to Emma Rose Cooper and the narrative I wrote about her because part of my methodology of writing very narratively from the sources I can 
of these women's lives is to, to try to not render them only in these spectacular moments of subjection. Because, and this is something I'm constantly humbled by and think about as a historian. I have maybe three documents, maybe four on Emma Rose Cooper. And she lived an entire life. She had an existence that I can't even begin to imagine. And I don't have the, you know, I'm not so arrogant as to think that my, you know, few page narrative description of Emma Rose Cooper somehow captures even an iota of what her life was to her. Because her life was not only framed in these terms of oppression and resistance. And particularly that's of course very important when we're dealing with black women's history because so often we wanna identify and see, you know, the politics of resistance in people. We want to kind of create resistance narratives um, for many reasons that I won't go into right here because I think a much more interesting question remains, which is speculation as a fugitive methodology for salvaging black wilderness particularly. And I think what speculation allows us to do, and you know, I've, I've read a lot of different ideas about critical fabulation, which is what Sadia Harman talks about extensively in her work. Um, I also think that Marisa Fuentes' work is really important here. But Marisa Fuentes, actually, we, I was in conversation with her a few months ago, and she reminded me of something really important, which is critical fabulation, you know, according to some of the methodologies laid out by Sadia Hartman, is not just, you know, kind of creating what is not in the archive, but acknowledging the limitations of what we can never create out of the archive, what we can never actually narrativize out of the archive to to get out of it. So I don't speculate as a way to pretend that I somehow am giving Emma Rose Cooper, you know, a chronology, a genealogy that, you know, doesn't exist in the archive, but should. But instead, I think what speculation allows me to do is it allows me to come up and take a breath out of the state's very suffocating narratives that again are about these specific causal chronologies that black women's actions are pre precedents for violence and then just sitting with the aftermath of violence. But I do like your words, Kelsey. And I think, I think that there's something really important there about how this kind of we can call it a fugitive methodology. Like, and for a second, maybe let's meditate on fugitivity for a second too. Cause like, you know, that's essential to my project. It's essential to how I'm thinking about disability here um, as a spatial, uh, as a spatial analytic. And so for me, fugitivity is not, I know it's not two things and then I'll tell you what I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> even though I think escape is not monolithic, but like fugitivity is not from A to B. It's not just from point A to point B and that's it. And that, that's kind of something we really understandably often get in you know, the underground railroad of labor. I understand why, because it's a notion of from unfreedom to freedom, although that's very troubled by what's going on in states that don't have slavery. 
especially about, you know, post the Fugitive Slave Act. But I also think that fugitivity is not all encompassing, even as it is a way in which for people to avoid and get around state violence. And I think that's maybe what brings me to like what I think of what a fugitive methodology is. It's not trying to get to a very specific place that the archive does not yield. It's also not trying to um, render people in constant states of fugitivity. I think instead it's a way of, and then I do this in one of my chapters and I think this is a nice image. It's a vanishing point. And I use that image in one of my chapters, which there's been, I've had many conversations with people, both artists and scientists about what a vanishing point is. And <laughs> I will say the way I understand a vanishing point so folks don't get confused about my metaphor is like, if you're looking, it's like a, the point in like a painting or also if you're standing on a railroad tracks and you see the parallel lines converge. And it's not that I think, for me, it's not that fugitivity is like, okay, well, that's it. Once you go past the point of the horizon and you can't see with the railroad tracks being parallel, that they're just fugitive forever. That, that's not what fugitivity is. For me, it's like, we get us to a vanishing point and then it's the possibility and what could have been otherwise that's on the other side. And I think that's what speculation is to me is like, what is otherwise? And rather than say for sure what it is, because I can't, because it's past that vanishing point for me, Instead, I just think it's an alternative state of being. And for me, for this chapter, for these archives, it's these disabled, incarcerated Black women who are arguing like, Mary Alexander, I can't work. I'm not going to work for you. But my condition of being disabled has nothing to do with how I'm theorizing freedom on the outside in terms of what you think my disability precludes me from doing and the way that you think my behavior should be. So Mary Alexander is not a perpetual fugitive. You know, Pearl Finley is not a perpetual fugitive. Fugitivity is a conditional state of being that was responsive to the labor they were forced to do, the violence that they were encountering. And their fugitivity likewise, in my opinion, was so rooted in you know, what we're calling salvaging this black willfulness, it was rooted in willfulness because everything about running away from prison was about taking the will of the state, the compulsion to be a docile laborer under the terms of liberalism and refusing it. And that fugitivity looks very different. And in the case of, you know, women who talk about their disabilities, you know, as we've talked about in this podcast today, there were particular valences but for other women, there were different valences. And so that's kind of where my project is intervening and trying to investigate. Thank you so much, Micah. I really appreciated this imagery and the language around the vanishing point um, and speculation as revealing a vanishing point between the limitations of the archive and social lives um, that cannot be derived from the archives themselves, but you can gesture towards an otherwise that does leave space or leave room for fugitive, fugitive movement. Thank you so much, Micah, for your time, for sharing your work with us. It's just been an absolute privilege and we're, we're really, really grateful. Thank you guys so much. It has been an absolute pleasure to be here with you today. 
and I really look forward to continuing these conversations in the future. Thanks to everyone out there for listening or reading the transcript. Please join us again next time. Bye-bye.